Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. Scientists are expressing concern about the declining numbers of pollinating insects such as bees and butterflies. Urbanization, the loss of prairie land, and the use of pesticides have all contributed to the problem. But there are things that landowners and homeowners can do to make their properties more pollinator-friendly. Today on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Entomology Vera Krischik discusses the role of these beneficial insects. Professor Krischik, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks for inviting me. There's been a lot of attention about the declining bee population, but uh, what other beneficial insects and pollinators are also seeing their populations decline? Yeah, there seems to be a general change in what hits your windshield. I mean, those of you who are around in the 50s, remember we had to have bug juice to clean our windshields. (laughs) (laughs) And you could actually see them splatter. And now, you know, I can drive through a rural area, through farmland, and there's nothing on my windshield. So there's a huge difference. And I think anybody who does conservation would tell you that. I come from the Chesapeake Bay of Maryland, and you look in the old etchings, and there's just tremendous numbers of birds. And then they went through that stage where they had these big guns that they basically shot, you know, hundreds of birds at the same time. And now when you go there, there's very few birds. I mean, the species are still there, but they're hard to find. They're just not everywhere. And I think that's the problem in teaching the next generation about conservation, is they don't realize what we saw or our grandparents saw. They think, you know, everything looked like this. They don't understand what passenger pigeons looked like or bobolinks. And so it's the same with bugs. There seems to be a drastic decline. There actually has been published papers in Germany where they have, for the last 60 years, looked at the same site, these as research, and documented, and it's a 65% decline in good bugs in these sites that they've been looking at. And so right away it comes to the question, the why. What is the why of this? Do we know why the pollinator populations are declining? Yeah, well... (laughs) It's habitat. There's not enough places for bugs to complete their life cycle. It's our management practices. Since World War II, there's been an explosion of the use of pesticides in the environment. There's people not understanding about insects and wanting always around their homes and their backyards to use maximum insect products because they're afraid the simplest little insect is going to pass on a disease. So there's a cultural issue. So it's habitat loss, management practices, and cultural issue. There is a lack of respect for bugs. <laughs> you know, that, that's an interesting point, Professor Krischek. Now, maybe I was the anomaly, but as a kid, I was fascinated by bugs. I like to be with bugs. I like to look at them and interact with them. We've heard a lot about parents being more protective these days. Is part of that keeping kids away from bugs? And have bugs perhaps taken on more of a ominous uh, image in recent decades? When we were kids, we were allowed to be alone outside. I mean, basically, get out of here, right? And you went out and you played with bugs and you made mud and you played with plastic dinosaurs and you could be gone for hours and nobody ever looked. Now people really keep good track of their kids. So I think that whole level of you discovering on your own is very limited now in kids. So, you know, when you figure it out yourself, you take it back to your parents, what's this? You'd look it up in the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, there is an ownership there, and I think... That's what's 
lacking. I don't see the inquisitive aspect in many kids. I don't see the learning phase of learning to respect what they find. And so then what you get left with is this fear of insects vectoring some disease, which is a very small proportion of insects. So I think, yes, um, a lot of people transmit into their kids the fear of bugs, where I think previous generations, people had maybe more of a farm background, spent more times outside, and they realized there's only a few kinds of bugs, like mosquitoes or something, that could vector a disease. Now, of course, this isn't everyone. There's a huge conservation movement in Minnesota, people who want to retrofit their landscapes. And they're out there with their kids. There's summer programs, you know, catching bugs, identifying them. So it's not everybody. Is the population decline of these beneficial insects more severe in Minnesota? How do we compare with other parts of North America? Yeah, so that's a good question. You'd have to um, go to other agricultural areas, and I think it's it's similar. Um, I'm from Maryland. I go back there nowadays, and when I go out into the rural areas, you know, using my windshield again is just a big sampling device. There's not that much of a difference. Um, certainly in the Midwest, the whole ethanol issue and the corn and soybean putting all the land into production that you can to maximize your profit because you need the profit has taken away all these marginal little areas that insects used to survive in. And so I got here 24 years ago and I see a dramatic difference in insects recruiting to flowers now and back then. And I think that to me is habitat destruction. There is just no little patches left. Um, and then we can get into pollution and all the chemicals and water and what effects those have. So habitat, again, pesticides are probably the two major reasons why all these good bugs. So you have to understand that insects evolved and they were behind the radiation of flowering plants. Without bugs, you wouldn't have flowers. I mean, it's hard to think that insects created all this diversity, floral form, floral morphology, scent, color, but they did because plants were co-evolving with them, using insects to pollinate them so they would get, you know, diversity in their seeds so they wouldn't always have the selfing and always have having the same kinds of seeds so that, uh, you know, in evolution, we always say that you have to have differences so different things could be selected for um, through evolutionary time. So the idea of having an insect vector your pollen and move it for you, since obviously plants can't walk, um, was the major radiation back at, you know, the end of the Cretaceous. 150 million years of coevolution, we are now decoupling. And so we're, most insects, I would say 99%, need pollen and nectar for their life cycles. So even a mosquito eats some pollen. And so when you start taking away all the prairie, you start taking away all the heirloom plants, and you just go to a box store and get some geraniums, there is no food. And so whereas I think 50 years ago we had more patches of favorable places, more vacant lots, more farm fields that had edges on them, there are more marshes, you know, fields that were wet that they didn't put drainage tiles in. So I think all of that has caused all these bugs to disappear. And then the more you get rid of the good bugs, the more you're relying on pesticides to manage the bad bugs. And so you get into this cycle of being more and more reliant on pesticides. We're talking with Vera Krischik. She is associate professor in the Department of Entomology at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about the decline of pollinating insects and the impact on our environment. What benefits to the environment do the pollinators provide? Yeah, so they go around and they move pollen, so they create diversity in the genetics of seeds, so plants can adapt to new changes. 
it seems clear in Minnesota we're going through a hotter, drier period. They say it's becoming more of a Mediterranean climate. And if we want our native plants to be able to live in that climate, they have to have diversity in their germplasm so that they can change and still live in drier or hotter conditions or whatever. So insects facilitate that by moving pollen. They make seeds, which is what you need for the next generation. They help make seeds by pollinating. And seeds in many times are surrounded by a fruit or a nut that we consume, that animals consume. So you start reducing pollinators, you start having an effect on the abundance of food in nature for animals to live on. And then, of course, there's a big issue now where we're realizing now that people are trying to measure how much pollination in crops goes on by native bees or managed honeybees. Remember, honeybees are originally from India to Italy, to Italy to the U.S. They're a managed species like a cow. They're not native. You know, we get a commodity from them, honey. Everyone always thought that these managed honeybees were doing the pollination in our agricultural crops. And I've been reviewing papers from India, Pakistan, all over the place. And when people actually go out and measure it, a lot of the pollination is by native insects. And people weren't realizing that. Study after study, which looks on how much pollen our honeybees actually getting from canola and corn, are finding they prefer wildflowers. They prefer to go out there. So these issues are going to become really more and more difficult to deal with as we reduce the number of native pollinators because clearly they're just as important as honeybees, so we just can't try to save honeybees. We have to try to save these native pollinators. And I don't think it's been on people's radar. I think Minnesota is very progressive in trying to sort this issue out and trying to figure out what we can do. And I think this whole idea of going out there and creating habitat by putting native plants back so that there are places for insects to cycle in, then they can move out into more managed habitats is really, really important. But I think there's a second problem that people don't like to discuss. It's much more volatile, and that is what's the effect of pesticides? You know, are pesticides in the environment having an impact or not? And that's much more difficult for people to agree on. Um, it all depends, I think, if you've seen kills of bees or other insects. Uh, we set up an experiment at the university to look at bumblebees, and we're trying to figure out, the EPA came out and said that 25 parts per billion of metacloprid is not going to hurt bees. It affects their behavior, but isn't going to hurt them. So we decided to do an experiment, and so we, have, we ordered bees, and we have them in little plastic cat carriers, and we have rebar through it to hold it in place, and it's a big elaborate setup, and then... We just got done putting the bees out there and we're standing there. This is really true. And somebody from the ground crew comes by and sprays herbicides. And all of a sudden you look and there's 100 dead bees that were out foraging. They make it back to the plastic we have around the colonies. And so you can count them. They're there. So we observed a bee kill. Now, we never expected herbicides to kill bees. And I was really surprised how quickly it all happened within 20 minutes. So I didn't lose all my colonies, but a lot of the workers were killed that were out there on the dandelions or the clover. And they, like I said, they made it halfway back to the plastic. I'm sure even more were dead in the field. So I think if you've seen a bee kill, you begin to realize, well, there, even though we have a very elaborate process of registering pesticides, that maybe somebody's missed something somewhere. 
Our guest is Vera Krischik, Associate Professor in the Department of Entomology at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about the declining populations of pollinating insects and the impact that's having on the environment. Is there a safe way to manage pests and unwanted insects while conserving the pollinators? Yeah, so when people ask me about this, I always say, well, you know, if you have a bug problem, first look and see if you have good bugs there. If you have good bugs, wait, see if they can fix the issue. The next thing is, can you just go out there and spray soap or oil in your backyard? Now, obviously, this isn't good for commercial people, but for homeowners, it would work. And then if you feel you have to spray, get a contact insecticide that's in a low amount. The AI is low. And spray that just on the spot of pests you see. You know, the problem is the people who broadcast insecticide systemics throughout their garden or do perimeter sprays around their house to keep bugs out of their house, and that gets in the soil. So it's not the contacts. I mean, the EPA formulates them to degrade, so they don't stay very long. It's these systemics, which are just the opposite. They're formulated to last for a long time. So what I say to people is, you know, go for contact insecticide. Only spray your clump of problem. Do it when bees aren't foraging, and, you know, maybe you'll have to do it two or three times. Now, don't use the systemics because they'll get into pollen and nectar and will affect everybody for quite a while. So I think you can make a decision. And these systemics, you know, they may be necessarily to keep in our toolbox for agricultural situations when we have really bad pests that we need to manage. And so it would be nice to keep them around for those issues when it's affecting production of food and just not use them for cosmetic use. What can we plant in our yards and gardens that would attract more pollinators? Yeah, so, you know, you can either use native plants or heirloom plants. So, you know, think of your grandmother's garden, what she had in there. And there's a lot of heirloom plants that came to us from different cultures around the world who emigrated to the U.S. And they've been in our gardens for a long time and they work really well. Some people want to just use native plants, and then you have to plant a seasonal phenology of those. They come into flower and go out of flower. So you have to have many species. You you do have to do that with heirloom plants as well. So And you can mix them. You can have both heirloom plants and native plants. So everybody is creating lists now of the best pollinator plants. It's not hard to find. And so find that list and buy what is suggested. And, you know, you can still have your bedding plants, your geraniums, your zinnias and pots or in the front of your flower bed, but try to retrofit the back of your flower bed with these heirloom varieties and these native plants that produce pollen and nectar. With increased urbanization over the last 50 or 60 years, how important is it to maintain gardens and green spaces in metro areas to help combat this uh, alarming decline of certain insects? You know, so that's a good point. There have been a number of studies now that have asked that question. With the high pesticide use in agriculture, are our suburban and urban areas becoming the sinks for storing um, good bugs? And the data has been yes. They seem to um, have less pesticides in their uh, honey when bees are kept in urban areas compared to rural areas. In Europe, where they are much, much more refrained in their pesticide use in urban areas. So there seems to be um, that 
data is supporting that we can use suburban and urban areas as sinks to hold these beneficial insects. Because in cropland, you know, I went to collect some specimens up in Alexander and driving down the rural roads. And, you know, a lot of times they put grass along the side of the road. They don't put pollinator plants. And and then now the farmers are, you know, putting that last row of corn or soybean up to the edge and mowing in between. And there really are no flowers left in a lot of rural areas. And I was very surprised about that. And that is an issue. If you don't have plants, you don't have food. So I think it is real important. I think, you know, some people, it's not for them. They want a lawn service. They don't want to mess with it. But I think municipalities, you know, whatever level you're at, a city, a county, state, should put a big effort into restoring habitat for beneficial insects. What efforts are underway now in Minnesota to help conserve pollinating and other beneficial insects? Yeah, as I said, I think Minnesota is hugely progressive in this area. Um, you hear all the time um, federal, state, MnDOT, everybody trying to figure out on the land they manage what they can do to preserve that land, reduce their pesticide use, reduce systemic insecticide use. You know, there are a bunch of um, very dedicated women who form these NGOs, and uh, they go out in their community, they plant gardens in the cities and the counties, and they work with homeowners and showing them what plants are good. So I think at any level, I can tell you, um, in Minnesota, we are really taking this issue. And in Minnesota, you know, we have one of the highest numbers of beekeepers, uh, North Dakota, Minnesota, in the states. If you look at the number of hives and where the honey comes from, it's for this Midwest area. And when I first started working on bees at always struck me as odd. If you have a horse, you have a pasture. But beekeepers don't have pastures for the bees. They have bees, but then they let them forage on their friends' lands. And, you know, now that we are becoming much more reliant on pesticides, it seems every year pest pressures are worse, there's much more pesticide use, even on crops like alfalfa or soybean, where there wasn't that many insecticides used before. And so I think it's becoming more and more difficult. So it would be nice to see some experiments and some restorations where beekeepers actually have pastures some bees, you know, cycling through different crops like buckwheat or canola that are good bee plants and see if that will help the health of the colonies. Because if you manage your own land, then you know there's not going to be pesticides on it. So, you know, there is so much pesticide use and we've come to uh, the conclusion that, you know, we need it in order to have enough food, that they're formulated to degrade, it's not that big an issue. But we don't have a lot of studies going around and looking at pesticides and ditches on soils around farmland and how much is being accumulated in these pollinator plants. So I think that's another area that we need to sort out. I was looking at them yesterday in preparation to talking to you, and there's six studies from around the world who have looked at these edge plants asking the question, how much pesticide? So when you do a restoration, how beneficial is it going to be? Are there going to be pesticides in those plants? And all those six papers all show that these wildflowers have pesticides in them that are coming probably the highest concentrations for water, but also drift through the air when a contact insecticide is applied. So, you know, we don't sometimes think things is an issue until you start to see the data. And of course, we have state programs where they monitor wells and things, but Nobody's going around and looking at 20 common pesticides in the soil around 
forage plants for bees, and I think that needs to be done. And these six studies from around the world, it's remarkable how much pesticide they're finding. And again, this is non-target. It wasn't intended. It's through airborne drift or through water movement that they're moving around into the quote-unquote naturalized areas. Our guest is Vera Krischek, associate professor in the Department of Entomology at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about the declining populations of pollinating insects and the impact that's having on our environment. What advice would you give to someone who wants to keep bees, perhaps in their backyard? Is this something an amateur can do, or would you recommend some sort of uh, instruction before someone embarks on, uh, on an amateur beekeeping career? Yeah, so it really is in to keep bees right now. Um, A lot of people want to do it. The university has been very accommodating with courses to get people established as beekeepers. Um, I think people don't realize the work involved, and especially there's this problem with this mite called the Varroa mite that came from Southeast Asia. And somebody suggested it's like wearing two or three rabbits around your neck, and they suck out the juices from the bees, and they also vector viruses in the bees. And everyone will tell you that's one of the main bee problems. And it seems the people, the homeowners who become beekeepers, they lose their colony very often from these varroa mites. They have to really get training in how to manage those. But then there's people now who are setting up these little straw nests. What you do is you put hollow straws in some kind of shape and you hang it from a tree. And these native bees go nest in it. And I think there's becoming more and more realization about patches of your lawn where you see bees coming in and out aren't wasps. Those are these native bees we're talking about. So if you don't have the time to do the honeybee thing, you can set up these nesting sites for native bees, you know, help people become aware where native bees are, become aware of bumblebee colonies, where they are in your garden, don't kill them. I think 10 years ago, a lot of people were killing bees in their backyard. And so if you can just learn to coexist with them. So I don't think you have to go as far as becoming a honeybee keeper, although a lot of people do and are enjoying it. I think there's also um, these native bees trying to maintain them in your backyard as well. Now, honeybees and bumblebees are not by nature particularly aggressive insects, are they? Yeah, so they get a bad name because wasps will have worker wasps that sit at the entrance, and that's their job to look at movement, and then they zip out and sting you. And so people just, oh, they have a bad experience with a wasp, a bumblebee is going to do that. Bumblebees are, like, really benign. They would rarely sting you. If you step on one on a piece of clover, which I did as a kid, you know, they might sting you then, but you can touch them when they're foraging and they just move on. So they're really not very aggressive aggressive at all. Honeybees, because there's so many, 50,000 in a colony, I wouldn't say go stroke a colony. I would stay back. Um, (laughs) But I think a lot of people's fear of bees come from bald-faced hornets, yellow jackets, which, because they have this division of labor and they have these guard wasps, they are, you know, much more aggressive. And so people get a bad name about them. I know there's a big thing right now with some university programs on trying to create these bee lawns, trying to get people not to use herbicides, to let violets and other flowering plants grow in the lawn to support bees. And, uh, 
you know, then people are going to really have to come up with coexistence information because, you know, if you're out there playing with the kids, we get back to this clover thing. I know after World War II in 1950s in New York where I grew up, clover came in the lawn mixes. You got clover all the time because it fixed nitrogen. It could be in dry spots. And as a kid, you did learn to coexist with bumblebees because they were foraging. And I think we've kind of lost that information, but I think it can work. Um, so I think those bee lawns, not only restoring native vegetation or using heirloom plants in your backyard, but also installing bee lawns, installing those plants that you can cut, yet they still flower, and decreasing herbicide use is a really good idea. What would you suggest for resources to learn more about pollinators and efforts to conserve beneficial insects. Yeah, so beneficial insect conservation, there's a group out in the West Coast. It's called the Xerces Society, and it's the Xerces Society of Invertebrate Conservation. And so all you have to do is Google invertebrate conservation, insect conservation, and they have every kind of beautiful bulletin you can imagine on different aspects. Of course, the Minnesota Extension Service and the Extension Educators, a lot of people are trained in this. A lot of the professors at the U who do research also put their research on the website. And you know, that's for consumers and for commodity growers. Um, there's been a big effort at whether it's the vegetable crop annual meeting or I go to the Christmas trees or whether it's the Minnesota Nursery and Landscape Association. They've been very accommodating of having us come on their program and talk of ways to retrofit your backyard. So I think for consumers and for the different commodity groups, there's been a real push in Minnesota to get out that information out there and it is available. So you just need to Google it, I think, and you'll find it. Vera Krischik is an associate professor in the Department of Entomology at the University of Minnesota. Professor Krischik, thanks for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. And thanks for liking bugs enough to want to conserve them. <laughs> Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.